take a look at it. So, Father, uh, we want to look at uh, relationships and we want to look at purity in the way that you see it, Lord. Uh, Things that you set, parameters that you set in place in our lives are for our safety. They're for our benefit. They're not because you want to limit us or because you want to hinder our enjoyment. But you want to see us, Lord, blossom um, and flourish into ways that we can just have true happiness and satisfaction and amazing holiness, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you'd build that into our hearts, Lord. Whatever restrictions that we might see, think, or feel from you, it's coming from a good, good Father. And it's coming with absolute love and wisdom behind it that's beyond us. And I pray that you could develop our faith to believe that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul's been hitting some stuff in this First Corinthians, huh? He's been talking about you know, discipline within the church, and then he was talking about um, sexuality for a lot, chapters 5 and 6. And then now in chapter 7, he finally gets into some questions they're asking about. So the previous, really, five chapters, he never really got to what they were asking. They wrote him a bunch of questions, and they said, how do we handle this? How do we handle this? How do we do with this? And he doesn't start actually getting to those questions until chapter 7. So like 1 through you know, 6, he had to lay the backdrop because what they were asking had a lot of stuff that they were missing. They just, like many times, we just want the answer. Just tell me the answer. What do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. And God is like, well, there's like a whole concept behind that. There's a whole process that we have to go through together. And then we'll arrive at the answer. Many times you just want to arrive at the answer, tell me what to do, what do I have to do, what do I have to say. But God works a lot differently. And so Paul spent all this time, and now he's going to dive into this idea of marriage. So I don't know if you remember, last week we finished up with a quote, which will kind of dovetail into what we'll talk about now. It did the, uh, we talked about the quote last week, the proof of your pardon, does anybody remember the rest? Probably not. Okay. The proof of your pardon is in your passion of your... Okay, so we're going to try again. So, tell you what, let's do this. You do all the P words, and I'll do the other words. Okay? So, the... Nice! We're good. (laughs) Of your... Pardon... Nice, nice job, Mom. Okay. <laughs> so we got the of your is in your got some eight plusers. Passion of your I didn't give you that one, right? But maybe you remember? That's a good one. Purity. All right, so let's try and tie it all together now. Baby steps, and maybe we can take kind of an adult step here. All right, so um, what are we even saying? All right, so the, the proof of your lies in your, of your, 
Okay, now, yeah, so now we can get it pretty good. So the of your lies in your of your nice. Good job, guys. Hey. At least got one thing today. And I'll tell you what, it's a really profound sentence, and it's not mine. Um, I forget who the author was I got it from, so I'm not going to take it as theirs. But um, there's a lot of truth in that. And so the proof of our pardon, so we've been pardoned, right? We're no longer for the Christian. They're no longer separated from God. We've got full access to God. Everything that Jesus lived out, whatever he did, we can now enter into relationship that Jesus had with his Father. We get to have the same exact relationship. That's incredible. That's amazing. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how many kids I'll let in my house and let them have the same relationship that I have you know, with my sons. I want it to be unique to my sons, my family. But God is like different, and his love is greater and bigger than that. It's not selfish in any way. So the relationship that Jesus had with his father, we are fully able to have that same relationship. So the proof of the pardon that we've been forgiven so that relationship can happen lies in our, what's that word? Passion. I'll tell you what, when I go around the valley in the town of Naugatuck, one word, there's a few words, but one word that sticks out to me that I don't see a lot of is that word passion. Passion. Passion is like, that's not just something where you just tolerate things, you roll with the flow, it's just, you know, we just, we just kind of do it. We just kind of like do our thing. And Passion is like an unquenchable desire towards something that you can't shut off. Passionate. You can't be denied it. And people get passionate about a lot of different things. People get passionate about saving the environment. Environment's a good thing. God created it. You know, I don't know if I want to make my whole life about saving the environment, but nonetheless, at least I got some passion. People can be passionate about their kids. People can be passionate about their jobs, whatever they do in the workplace. It just means a lot to them. They get a lot of excitement and joy out of it. They're passionate about it. I think it's pretty healthy to have some several passions in our lives, some things that are like, man, this really just marks who I am. I get excited about such and such. I find the best parts of me come out when I'm doing such and such. It's good to have those passions. It's good to know where God has made us with those certain passions in our lives. But certainly, for the Christian, the number one passion in their life should be their Father who set them free, who never allows their sin to count against them. And whose answer is always yes and amen towards their daughter and son. Who says, I will empower you to accomplish everything I'm going to set before you. No matter how difficult, or maybe even how easy, no matter how enjoyable, or how frustrating. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm always for the best of your value and your destiny. Like, the Christian should be really passionate about that. Passionate. And it's not something you can really conjure up. And I think probably that's where like a lot of churches and places maybe fall short. Is you know, if you get a, a, a like a a creative enough service with like a lot of lights and 
action and things. And, and I'm not saying those things in and of itself are bad. I'm saying, but it, it could easily start to become, if you got enough of a hyped up performance, then that shows people are passionate. And that's not really it either, you know? The question is, I'm passionate. Am I passionate on a Sunday morning with my church family doing whatever? And am I also passionate on Tuesday night, depending upon how the day went? And I think for the Christian, that level of passion is going to adjust and change as we're in relationship with him. As we draw closer to his heart, we start to understand more how he feels about us and what he says about us and what, how he wants to father us. And that just, that just locks in our hearts. And it just creates more of a passion and a desire to be close with him. So the rest of that saying, so the passion in our, the last P, Purity, right? Purity. That's a fun word, right? Who wants to talk about that? But it's necessary. It's really necessary. Purity is a huge deal in the kingdom. Because basically God is saying, hey, there's so much you can have, so much you can do. It's fine. Go after it. Do it. For most things, it's a yes and amen and enjoy it. And for some things, he's like, "Mm, not quite yet. Or maybe not in that way might be off limits. Like when you put Adam in the garden, it's just crazy to me how Adam had like, you know, full access to every single thing he wanted. Anything he wanted, whenever he wanted. In fact, he could even just speak and just, he would just name things. He would just do whatever he wanted. And God was in full support of everything that he did. You know, he never gave him a hard time. He's like, that's a stupid name. Why did he choose that? You know, or that's kind of weird. Why are you doing that? He never gave him a hard time. It was just full range. But there's only one thing. That was off limits. And God's like, you got full range, full domain, literally your world. Go ahead. And Adam sees all that and he's like, nah, why not that thing too? <laughs> Hyper focus on the one thing and it was everything else. Let me have some of that. And then what the enemy does, he says, well, if there's a loving God and he really loved you, why would he have something off limits for you? And that's the lie that the enemy has been very successful in telling many Christians and many non-Christians. If there is a God who is loving and a father, a good, good father, why are some things off? He must be anti our enjoyment and pleasure. So then there's this God who makes these things. He puts it all around us and he says, don't see, don't taste, don't touch. What kind of God? So the enemy's been super successful in selling that one. Super successful. Unfortunately, because many people don't know God's heart and they haven't withheld themselves to keep themselves pure for an amount of time to when God releases those other things in their life, they can handle it in a way that is amazing and brings joy and contentment. And because they've waited to be pure, they can now have a testimony and say, ah, I used to think the same thing, but you know what? I stayed the course. I tried not to falter. Man, I'm on this side now, and I'm telling you, it's really worth it. It's really worth it. That's why there's such a premium, especially in our younger church. There's such a premium for older, wiser wisdom that has gone there, tried that, no, not worth it. 
and they have a testimony to share about it. Such a premium for that older, wiser wisdom that's gone and done things and gone and done places. Not all of us are older, but for the younger of us, we can still be like in the process of being like, ah, I'm struggling with why he says that's off limits, but I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I need some people to come alongside of me to help me on this journey to also go after purity. Because if God's saying it's important, I want to be in agreement that it's also important. It's really hard to go after purity by yourself. It's a surefire way for failure. <laughs> is to go after purity by ourselves. It just doesn't work out very well. So let's see if we remember. So the... Of our... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Some people are just all passionate. Yeah. <laughs> so we got the of our lies in our for our. Hey, all right, nice job. All of that has to be said, and like we we have, it's necessary to spend time there because. As we get to marriage, when we jump into that, it becomes very difficult if that was never a framework of focus before marriage, and then you try and jump into marriage and then make it one. Boy, that's tough stuff. It's very, very difficult. It's not impossible. God can do it. And there's many stories that have. But if we don't have to do 40 years in the desert, it's nice not to have to do that. So let's take a look. All right, so now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, or in some versions says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So he says, now for the matters you wrote about. So now I'm going to get to the questions that you wanted to ask me. Um, It is good uh, for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Meaning, not just in general, that they should not have sexual relations with each other. Not at all what he's saying. And the reason why we know that is because in Ephesians 5, what passage? Ephesians 5. What passage? Hey, okay. Ephesians 5. It's, it's Nice job, guys. It's all about, in Ephesians 5, talking about how marriage illustrates... Christ and his love for the church. And of course, within that arena is sexual activity. That's what happens. And Paul's starting off because it seems like their question is going to be, which we'll get to in a minute. So their question that they're really asking is, you know, is celibacy somehow more pleasing to God than being married? That's what they're asking. And Paul's going to try and handle that question. So he gets right to it right away. He just tries to take the obvious off the top. Hey, listen, uh, it's not good to just like sleep with each other. Not a good thing. So he starts there. He says, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. So verse 2, a.k.a. meaning, since there's like such a lack of control in that arena, 
Because that's a strong arena, right? Like, you know, we have desires for air, kind of important. Our body needs that. Um, our body needs food, right? Um, you know, we need shelter, right? Like, we need, the, like, some basic things in life. Even, like, human interaction, like, you need that. If you're by yourself on an island somewhere, like, it's not going to, that's, like, weird, right? Another desire that God has placed within people is that desire, right, for sexual companionship, intimacy. So Paul is saying, because most people, many people in this church, and probably a lot of churches today, they have not done a good job of pursuing after purity before, they're not knowing how to handle it now. So they're thinking it's their own sexuality and they can do what they want with it. And Paul is saying, yeah, because that's distorted and they're not getting it, because it's a good gift that God has given is being used in the wrong way, it's definitely fine and okay to marry and even celebrated, but there's a real lack of self-control going on here. And that's what Paul is saying. There's like a total lack here. You guys aren't getting this. So he says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. So you could see how some people can manipulate that verse. <laughs> that's my body. That's my body, you know, and you can just see where that goes. Not a good situation. The idea that Paul is paint, painting here is that when a couple does become married, the idea is that it's the most amazing and significant covenant second to our relationship with Christ. It's the most amazing, most significant covenant that two humans will ever, ever enter into. They become one. They're supposed to become one. Oneness, one flesh, one body, one life. So you get two souls, two lives, two sets of um, you know, career paths and families. And what they do is they, just, they choose to join that together and become one. So now they function as one unit through life. Not one always trying to go that way, one trying to go that way. They, they've chosen to submit their overall agendas and desires and just go after what's best for the marriage, not what's best for themselves. So Paul is saying, hey, like, you don't have like your own thing. You don't have like your own thing. Now we have to start thinking of you as one unit. One unit. And I'll tell you what, as we talk more about this, you know, Jesus was, was pretty interesting. In Matthew 19, you can read there later in the week, the issue of you know, marriage and divorce and all that came up. And Jesus said, hey, he laid down some strong words for marriage. And the disciples' response was, well, who can do this then? Who wants to get married and do that? And Jesus is like, ah, you're getting it now. This is heavy-duty stuff. Heavy-duty stuff. And much of the way, you know, we treat it around us, it's like really casual sort of things. Okay, so let's pick up here. So, verse 5. Do not deprive each other sexually. So do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right, so if a couple is not really having anything happen sexually, and there hasn't, and there's like an extended period of time there. Paul is saying that sort of situation should really only happen when both spouses, husband and wife, they said, you know, we need to just really fast that area for right now and just focus on God in prayer for our jobs, for our kids, for what's going on in our church, for whatever it is. They're saying, hey, as a unit, like we're, we're shutting down most things and we're even shutting down arena right now and we're just focusing on God together on this. Most times, couples aren't doing anything in the bedroom because they're mad at each other for whatever reason. And Paul's like, nah, you know, th- that's going to affect that, but that's, that's not... That's not why some couples just stay away from each other in that arena. He's like, let's keep the focus of, if you guys aren't touching each other and doing anything, let it be because you've communicated. And I know that's a problem right there, but you've communicated and you've agreed that we're going to abstain in this area. We have some sort of predetermined time that we're going to talk about. And we're dedicating that time to praying and fasting. It's interesting, right? Maybe it's not. Okay. And verse 6. Right? His warning for doing it in that way so that Satan wouldn't come in and tempt people. I got a coworker. You know, he says, uh, well, maybe he'll listen to this message. We'll see. He's always interested in this topic. Um, but he's like, he's like, Jared, he's like, you know, the only thing that matters in a marriage is regular sex. That's all that matters. He's like, that's it. He said, you know, you tell me a marriage that's having regular sex and they're fine. They're fine. As long as they can do that, they're fine. They're not looking elsewhere, not doing anything. So that's all that matters. I'm like, man, I'm like, you know, what? I think it's so ridiculous. I said, listen, what do you do with a couple that's been married 50 years and 60 years and they just don't? Their marriage is somehow unhealthy now, in some way, because that's not happening. Oh well, da 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 da. You know, and and there's so many other situations to where I, I you know, I was like, well, we don't need to get into the whole conversation. But <laughs> the idea being is that that's a very common way of thinking, right? It's a very common way of thinking, as if that's like the ultimate destiny of what God has ordained in that marriage to make sure that arena is happening in a great and amazing way. That arena is a fruit of what happens spiritually. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's always been that way before marriage and during marriage. Whatever happens over there in that room is because of what's going on over here spiritually in those other rooms. That's an amen. Thank you. That's good. Yes. Because that's the way it's supposed to be. So it's like so bothersome and worrisome when, you know, I see and witness and um, just people all over, you know, they just choose to do the relationship however they do it, usually on their own terms. And then they want to choose to get married and, and you're hoping for the best, you know, and, but you know it's going to be tough for them because they never really honored God the way they should have in the beginning. 
And what God is asking for later on is going to seem super impossible because it was never really pursued in the beginning with passion. So that's why premarital counseling is like very helpful. Very helpful. And people really, outside of faith, they, they don't quite get that or understand it. Well, why, why don't you wait till there's a problem? Like, why would you? The whole idea is you want to do preventative maintenance as much as you can and set yourself up in a position to succeed and do well. Because even though, right, they just took their vows, it's, it's going to take a long time for it to come into full understanding of what they just got themselves into. And I don't say that in a negative way. I, I say that in a joyful way. Because they started off well. That's huge. It's really difficult when you don't start off so well. And then you have a real understanding later. And it's like, if I would known that, I wouldn't have done it. And God's saying, no. Like, my love was, was never like that. My, my love is rooted in commitment and staying faithful. That's what Jesus represented. Love being a choice. Love is a choice. We choose to become the love that has saved us. That's what impacts the world. Okay, here we go, verse 7. So he says, I wish that all men were as I am. He's single at this point. A lot of people think he was married early on, and probably he was, because he was part of a Jewish ruling council. And many times to be a part of that, you had to be married. At some point in time, something happened with his wife. Don't know. Just a lot of speculation about it. But verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So he's saying, listen, if it's possible, try and remain single. You can do a lot. You can move and you can shake and you can just spontaneously just go. Just available for whatever the Lord wants to do. But that's not to say that marriage is somehow inferior to celibacy. That was the whole question he was trying to answer and get at. And that's why the Ephesians 5 passage is so important. Because it's all about marriage signifying as a sign to the world of what Christ in the church is like is because it's happening in that home. People can better understand Christianity because they see a marriage who is submitted to it and lived it out. Verse 8, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I am. Say, man, it's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. And that's why I try to make it a point, too, or at least in the past few years, I've tried to make it more of a point to, I think somehow in the church there's, a, there's just a message sometime of like marriage is the ultimate goal. Like that's, you know, just, and it's not. Becoming more like Jesus is the ultimate goal. Marriage happens, might happen. You know, that's not, it's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is becoming more like Jesus, and let's just see where that goes. Ultimate happiness, fulfillment, and contentment doesn't have to be found in marriage. It says, verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, then they should marry. <laughs> For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So verse 10, To the married I give this command, not I but the, but the Lord, 
So I'm not quite sure what that statement means, but it's heavy on his heart, but it seems like he cannot, in a confident way, said that God definitely gave this as an apostolic word, but something with about it means he has to write it. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or it's be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So if separation happens, then, okay, let's try and let that happen for a period of time, but let's have the goal be reconciliation. The goal always in Christianity is to have confession, some sort of working towards reconciliation, and have reconciliation happen. That's just the message of the gospel. That's us being lost, having a way through Jesus Christ. We become reconciled to the Father. And God is looking for that same thing to happen in marriage and relationships. And relationships go through their difficult times. And things that happen, whether people did them on purpose or they didn't, tough seasons, difficult times happen. But Paul's trying to make a point here. Hey, listen, don't look at that as your way out. Don't look at it as your way out. Utilize that as a time to align yourself with my heart and with what I'm doing here. Because the wheels are falling off this thing. But I will empower you to carry out what I'm asking you to do. So verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So the question that they're asking really is, hey, so what do we do? We have people in our church where, you know, they just got saved, one spouse got saved, one did not, or they don't want to, or they're unsure. And so they're asking basically, Paul, what do we do? I just got saved. My spouse either did or doesn't want to. What am I supposed to do? If they don't want to go the same direction I'm going, should I just get a divorce and get out of this thing and then go the way God wants me to go? So that's the question that they're asking, which is a good question, right? It happens today. You know, how does that look? What do we do? Well, that's what he's talking about here. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. It's probably not the answer everybody wants to hear. But that's what he's trying to say. Hey, if they can live together in the same house, it can still function in a way to where it's not damaging anybody else physically, verbally. The kids are safe. Hey, try and stay in the same house. And what if it was a no in that case, right? So what if it was a no? What if no, no, it's super dangerous to then he would say, well, separate for a period of time. Let's see what we can work out. Paul's goal is always going to go back to, just like Jesus, it's always going to go back to do whatever you can to preserve the marriage. What happened on that day when the minister, whoever said, what God has now joined together, let man not separate? Heavy, heavy, heavy duty. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer, right? Same thing. And he's willing to live with her. She must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband, interesting thing here, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her unbelieving husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So in other words, if a believer chooses to still remain in the house to remain married to a spouse that doesn't want to commit their lives to the Lord, Paul says, hey, listen, stay in that. And because you will stay in that, favor and anointing is going to rest upon your home and your household. It will actually cover your spouse, who's not even a believer, and it will cover your kids. It doesn't mean that they're saved. But it does mean because of the act of obedience in faith that God will honor that and somehow it will spill over into the family. It's interesting. Verse 15, But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So if they want to go, you got to let them go. You can't, You're staying. You know, like, can't do that. Can't force them into that. Verse 17, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned him to and to which God has called him. Again, emphasizing, if you're saved, spouse is not. It's, it's a difficult situation. Paul's saying do everything that you can to remain in that situation and shine bright. This is the way I lay down in all the churches. Verse 18, Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man circumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. So in other words, he's just saying, listen, whether somebody gets circumcised or whether they don't, signifying somebody submitting their lives to God, when that happens, you all of a sudden don't change your families and divide it all up, you stay in the lot that you're in. Stay in the lot that you're in and figure out how you can appropriately submit and surrender to God in the midst of it to have His glory come on that family and hopefully see the spouse be completely saved. See, the children see what it looks like to have a mom or a dad to be completely submitted, even though they have an idea that the other mom or dad isn't really on board with it. So he's saying, stay in that situation. Stay in the home. That's tough. That's like tough truth right there. I know several couples. It's like, man, it, it would be so much easier if they just get out. It's like, ugh, so difficult. My heart just breaks for them because it's just such a difficult situation. And the struggle is just, there's, the struggle is that the enemy continually paints the idea of they don't deserve it, they don't care, it's so much easier if you just left, you shouldn't be tre- getting treated this way. And what the enemy can do is he can just surround other voices that are like, yeah, you shouldn't get treated that way, it is pretty awful, it's not any good. But that's not the voice of truth. That's a voice of sympathetic understanding that relates to flesh. 
And it does not at all empower the way of the Spirit that God calls us to live. This idea of marriage is heavy, heavy duty. Heavy duty. That's when disciples heard it. When Jesus is talking, they're like, who wants to do that? Bless you. And Jesus is like, well, you've got to know what it means. You've got to know what it is. Verse 25, now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. So again, he's just trying to say, hey, there's a lot of value if you can, if you can be single and remain that way. A lot of value. But he'll just go back to saying, if you're just burning with passion and you, know, you just really have a heart to romantically be with someone, it's not a bad thing. You know, do it. But there's a lot of value in being single. Verse 29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So he's saying, honestly, for the people that choose to remain single, this is just a blip on the radar screen. He's just trying to encourage them with the reality of the situation. Meaning, if we had, you know, a spray bottle in here and you just sprayed it and you just saw the vapor of it, I don't see one anywhere, but if you saw the vapor of it and it disappeared, that's the way the Bible describes our life here on earth. That's it. It's just like you just sprayed it and you saw the vapors and that was it. The bulk of where we spend our life is, is not here. So he's trying to encourage a single. He's going to say, listen, it'll... it'll have its challenges and frustrations, just like marriage will. It won't be quite as difficult because there's two people in marriage, which two people is very difficult. A little bit easier with one. But listen, we'd be committed and follow through. It's only for a short period of time. Just a vapor. That's it. Verse 32, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm not saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's just saying the freedom factor in remaining unmarried is definitely an advantage to where the Lord moves and calls. It's just easier to do. Obviously just more difficult when you have your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids at home. It's just more difficult not impossible, and God will still work with it. And it's not a knock on marriage. It's just the reality of the situation. Verse 36. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning, 
they should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, isn't that a big one? Has control over his own will. That's kind of the big one there. And who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So is either one of them wrong? No, neither of them are wrong. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. He is really trying to sell his cause. I mean, yeah. He's like, hey, marriage, you know, it's good, but it's really nice to be single. You know, he's like really selling it. Verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry someone else she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happy if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And then I get to some more stuff. So Paul here, he doesn't give a completely exhaustive theology on marriage. He really just focuses on some questions that they had. Some questions on, you know, celibacy, having a spouse in the home, one saved, one not saved. Um, if you can divorce, when's the situation that we can do that? And so he really just tries to handle those questions then and there. So it's not totally exhaustive and probably opens up even more questions, um, but those are some of the issues you know, that Paul deals with and talks about. And I hope that we can see the way that the Bible paints the idea of marriage is that it's a heavy-duty Commitment. Heavy duty. Like we were talking about in our premarital counseling, it's the like best dressed funeral that you will ever go to. Because that's what it is at the altar. It's funeral time. You get to die. Isn't that amazing? And you get to live the rest of your marriage showing that, you know what, I'm dying for your sake to hold us up. That's what it's supposed to be about. And most people just know when the feeling of that love and excitement wears off, or maybe even complete repulsion and other things set in, it's like, oh, it's definitely time to check out of this thing. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You died to that. You died to that. They're just not seeing really clear right now. So you better fast and pray and be on your knees for them. Become love for them in such a way that they've never seen. Don't become wrecked because of what they're doing and how horrible it is. Draw closer to my heart. Let me change you in a way that you can connect with them. So marriage, the way God talks about it, the way the Bible gets into it, and the way Paul addresses it, I think we can see sort of like the whew, sobering context to it. And some of us, probably a lot of us, a lot of people in churches, you know, they just go, after they, they, they have lived some life or either been in a marriage, then they divorce and they just have just done things and just like, man, I wish I knew this ahead of time. The good news is, you know it now. The good news is, God's, it's not like divorce is the unforgivable sin. It comes with a lot of pain and collateral damage because that oneness thing is no joke. And when that separates, that there are pieces that are left here and pieces that are left here. That's the original d- design of it, is to leave and to cleave together. But it's not the unforgivable sin. 
You know, so when couples or people feel this heavy guilt of, oh, I didn't do anything in my marriage the way God was asking me to do. Maybe you're right about that. Maybe you didn't. The good news is we confess that and say, Lord, I just did not. I am so sorry. And Father, if there's something I can do in place now, I can't make up for it. And you're not calling me to just pay the rest of my life for that sin I've done. But if there still are some arenas in that way that I have to deal with, help me to deal with it. And God says, okay. He doesn't rub our faces in it. We're forgiven sons and daughters that come to him. And that should be freeing for us. Marriage isn't the ultimate goal. Becoming more like Jesus is. Right? And our passion for purity proves our pardon. That's all backwards. Did you like that? So let's be a people that just goes after passion and go after long enough so we can see the value in it. That it isn't just God's stuff that he tells us to do and not do. That there's tremendous wisdom, but we'll never see the wisdom on the other side if we deviate from the plan. Amen, amen? So that is a tough passage. It's not one that I would pick, I'll tell you that. Bless you. Bless you. So let's stand and pray. And we'll go sweat in our homes. Okay, so let's do this. So I don't know if anybody... Uh, so let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Um, so I don't know if anybody's you know, feeling really bad and feeling really shameful about either present relationships or past relationships. Um, if so, then let's just take care of that now, right? So if your heads are uh, bowed, eyes are closed, you know, if you just feel a lot of shame about past relationships or present ones, um, just look up. Then you can get like some good praying and healing done in here. So any shame on that, just look up. Nice. So, Father, uh, we just pray uh, just for your healing just to come, Father. Just your freeing power, Lord. I pray, Father, that what you have spoken to our hearts and, and showed us briefly this morning about marriage and relationships, that it wouldn't overwhelm us and cover us with shame and guilt, Lord. But I pray that it would call us and help us to realize what you've made us for. And I pray, God, that if there's things in the past that we have not dealt with, or maybe even the present that we're not currently dealing with in the way that we should, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would embolden and give courage to those who need it, Lord, to truly handle it with some passion, Lord. To be aggressive where they need to be aggressive, Father. To protect And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people, Lord, that would commit ourselves to what you're calling us to, Lord. That we would understand love the way that you talk about it, that we would become that love and live it out, Lord. So I pray that we would, it would take a lot to offend us, 
I pray that we would not be people that look for what's wrong and how people respond to it. That we wouldn't look for what's wrong in it, Lord. We would just look, Lord, to love and become love, not keep a record of wrongs, Father. And I pray that we would draw hard lines in our life when it comes to truth and not compromise in those areas. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. the one we want to need.